0: G'day and welcome to a grad chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's grad chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So, thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you may miss the shows at any time, you know, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. And as another reminder, of course, we aren't doing this in the studio because of COVID and we're just being very careful. So this is being recorded um, over the internet, so to speak, but it seems to be working very well over the weeks. But, of course, the clarity sometimes isn't as good as what it would be if we were in the studio. All that aside, though, Today, I would like to introduce you to Sophia Melendez, who is doing a Master of Education under the supervision of Dr. Saad Shaheen. Welcome to Grad Chat, Sophia. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting, actually, because um, a colleague of Sophia's um, was on the show recently, Clarissa de Leon. And I said, oh, you know, I need a few more people. Come on, who do you know? And she sent me a whole list of education students. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Sophia was on it. So, And here we are.
1: Here we are. Yeah, so I love Clarissa. She's definitely a really big role model, and I'm so grateful that she put me on that list and now I have
0: this opportunity. Well, she said you've got some interesting research that you're doing, and we're going to find out a little bit about that um, shortly. But before we do... Can you just give us a bit of a background about yourself and what made you want to actually go and do a master's in education?
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, about myself, maybe some super important things about me. I was born in Mexico and I moved to Canada when I was seven years old. Uh Um, My favorite things to do. I love, love, love dancing, especially salsa and bachata. I also love And I did my undergrad here at Queen's as well in psychology. And during my time in psychology, I took a course with Dr. Jill Atkinson that looked at higher education and the psychology behind pedagogy or like the science of learning and teaching. And I was so mesmerized by that course. I loved it so much that I decided, you know what, I'm going to apply for my master's of education you know every week uh, along with that course we we got to TA psych 100 which is the introductory psychology course and every week the highlight of my week was was facilitating those uh, learning labs or the tutorials it just gave me so much energy teaching and i thought you know what education seems like a really great field and i can really merge my passion for psychology and education within this masters and that and that's what i've done and honestly it's really opened up my world to new ways of knowing to valuing different things so i'm i'm super grateful to be part of the faculty of education
0: Wow, what a background. That's awesome. It's actually quite amazing what we do in undergrad. You do things that you don't expect. And then suddenly you go, okay, I've got another career option here that I hadn't even considered to start in the first place.
1: That even happened with psychology. When I came to Queen's, I was thinking like chemistry, biology, maybe life sciences, and I took psychology as an interest, and it, mm-hmm. it my biggest and most favorite uh,
0: course and subject. So, yeah, that's what I majored in. That's brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so now we know a little bit about you. Um, and also I think it's fantastic you come from Mexico, and <laughs> you know, you've know you made Canada your home, and I've I kind of made my Canada my home now because I've moved around a little bit too. Right. So it, it's nice that we can do that. But let's get on to your research, because you've got a very interesting topic here, although all all my students have great topics. (laughs) But uh, your research is towards improving the education that mental health professionals receive about transgender spectrum health. So before we get too much into it, can you just give me a very brief overview of what that all means?
1: Yes, for sure. It's kind of a long title, and I keep... It is. (laughs) Try to reduce it and reduce. It. it used to be way longer. My uh, supervisor is like, no, Sophia, it needs to be shorter. <laughs> so <laughs> here we are having to explain this long title. Basically, I'm trying to develop and validate an instrument or a research tool that measures mental health care professionals. So that could be clinical psychologists or social workers, for example, It that measures their knowledge, their skills and their awareness about transgender spectrum health. So, okay. yeah, so basically this, this research is, is mixed methods, meaning it has both quantitative and qualitative pieces, um, and it's gra- guided by critical theory. So thinking about feminism, intersectionality, queer theory, and it's led through collaboration with people in the trans community, uh, which is really important so that we're amplifying the voices of trans people and gender diverse people in order right. to produce a strengths-based quantitative measure. so so this means a lot of the time in research we do deficit space research but this is really trying to focus on on the strengths of the trans community focusing on their resilience and all of the things that they, they show through their strength yeah
0: and so okay so you're talking about the trans community now a lot of people get confused with some of the different naming that we we use these days from mm-hmm. you know trans, even just looking like gender Gender preference, cisgender, uh, bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual, assigned sex—all those different things. Can you just give us a bit of an idea of what you mean by transgender?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of words, like you said, and a really interesting thing about language is is that it's always changing, and it's really important that we really listen to the communities that are using these words so that we can properly learn about them. And I've done so mm-hmm. much learning. So when we're talking about gender, for example, we're thinking more about like the psychological and the social expectations of things. Whereas we were talking about sexuality, that's, that's thinking more about sexual orientation or affectional orientation. Sometimes people mix up like the LGBTQ kind of umbrella, but gender and sexuality are kind of two separate things. And before I start talking about more about transgender based things, I really do want to recognize that I am a cisgender woman and I can't necessarily speak for the trans community. However, I can share the knowledge that I've learned from trans folks as I look to amplify their voices. So, so broadly speaking, transgender, a transgender person is someone whose gender is different from the social expectations of their assigned sex at birth. So gender is more of a social, psychological process, like I was mentioning, and mm-hmm. sex is more of a biological, legal process. And there's, there's lots of different ways that we can express our gender. So that's another thing like gender expression. So the clothes we wear, the way we speak, the way we interact with others, the spaces that we use, um, and, the, and the different ways that we identify. So that's gender identity as opposed to gender expression. And so right. w- within the transgender spectrum, there's people who identify as women, as men, as gender non-binary, gender fluid, queer, uh, two-spirit, among many other identities. And a lot of people have multiple identities. So, so the best way to know is to ask somebody, you know, how they identify um, if that if that's relevant, and sometimes uh, we use the short form trans to to represent transgender or transgender spectrum, and that's what I'll be using throughout this radio interview.
0: So you can see how confusing it can be for people.
1: Definitely. Oh, and there's one more. You you talked about cis. Uh, yes. Here. So so transgender versus cisgender. Cisgender is somebody whose gender is the same. For the social expectations of their assigned sex at birth, whereas transgender is when it's different.
0: So, do you need to put the cisgender
1: if you're the same? You don't have to. So, when I wanna when I want to identify myself as a cisgender woman, because that kind of positions me in society and lets people what uh, assumptions I come to the world with, for example, or what experiences right. I come to the world with, then then I'll say that it's kind of saying like I'm a first generational settler or. Those types right. of things, you're kind of identifying your positionality, but you don't necessarily have to use that word. It's kind of just when you're sharing. I,
0: I, well, I think we all need to sort of start getting used to hearing some of this terminology because we are hearing it more and more. And, and every now and then you can see people stopping and thinking, OK, where does that fit? Yeah. So this it's really, really important that we um, if these words are going to be out there, that we understand where it all fits
1: yes and to be open and flexible to change i i know sometimes people can feel like oh why do i have to like learn all these new words they're constantly changing what's the point of learning and i really think that if 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 it makes a really big difference in somebody's quality of life and it does like for example to use proper pronouns for somebody yes. i think it's totally worth a small change and a small learning in my in my everyday life, so that they can they can, you know, have a better quality of life, because it
0: really, it really does make a difference. It does. And I, and that's something that I'm getting used to now, because I was I'm thinking, why do we have to have to put these pronouns, but you've very eloquently told us, you know, the, how, how important it can be for people. Mm-hmm. So um, that that is great. So thank you for clarifying that for us. <laughs> so Going back to your research, though, why is this research important? And and you know, I'm assuming there must have been some gaps as to why you wanted to do this research. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So when we're thinking across North America,
1: or Turtle Island, mental health professionals and trainees are ill-equipped to work with transgender spectrum or trans communities. So Again, I'm talking, when I say mental health professionals, I'm talking about clinical psychologists, social workers, and doctors who engage in psychotherapy. And often mental health professionals, you know, they're not aware of the issues that trans people face. Only one in three feel competent in this area of health care. Almost half feel unconfident in providing care for transgender youth. And almost a 90% feel they do not have adequate clinical education about trans health. So with, with these issues, we have to also be aware of the history and structural issues behind this. This is kind of where the critical theory comes in. Right. So we have to be thinking like our society and institutions have been regulating gender throughout history. So when we think about colonialism, this has brought a very rigid binary category for how we can express gender. And mental health institutions have played a really big part in this regulation. For example, there's many mental health practitioner guidelines or assessment tools that have really reinforced how we're allowed to express our gender. And this has negative impacts uh, for transgender and gender non-conforming people. And we we see big remnants of this oppressive history in um, in today's mental health practice. So there's a really large body of literature I read so many papers that have shown <laughs> that many trans people continue to have negative experiences with their mental health care professionals.
0: Well, it wasn't that long ago, you know, you hear about some of the old psychology books and things of who who they determine as being sick and who is not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I can I can imagine that or I would like to think today in today's society with all the changes that you know, a uh, uh, newly educated clinical psychologist are getting a better understanding of uh, you know how they can they can use various tools to help them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and institutions are really slow to change. So, so this change has been happening over time, as we see in the what's called the DSM. That's kind of like um, a guideline for for people working in mental health. We've seen right. improvements, but there's still a long way to go and um one important part of the solution um is clinical education systems like like you mentioned the education piece like so many studies organizations stakeholders have really pointed to education as one way to address you know the, the gaps in the knowledge the skills and the awareness of mental health professionals about trans health so that's kind of where the gap comes in there's no what what we call in research psychometrically valid instruments. So basically we wanna when we're measuring something, we wanna make sure we're measuring what we're saying we're measuring. You know, if we say I'm trying to measure love, you wanna make sure that your research tool is actually measuring that. So that's what I mean by psychometrically valid. And there's no psychometrically valid instruments to measure the trans health knowledge, the skills or the awareness
0: of mental health professionals and trainees. So with this, though, so you're you're wanting to measure the health professionals um, understanding. Yes. And knowledge. Mm -hmm. Does your um, the metric that you're looking at look at the differences of when these health professionals, for instance, did their training? Because I I would like to think that the training today is better than the training like 20, 30 Mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be able to show that
1: change just from doing the measure. But if, you know, once this measure is developed and validated, if we take a measure now or whenever it's ready, and then take it again in 20 years, for example, I think that we would definitely be able to see uh, improvements on that over time. So it's a pre-post design where you take it before the the educational intervention, and then you take it after the educational intervention, and you see you know whether their understanding or what i call ksa the knowledge the skills
0: and the awareness have improved um, right yes and so would you be working with institutions such as queens because we, we have a clinical psychology mm-hmm. program here
1: yeah yeah would well, you be I,
0: working within the institutions
1: i yeah i would love to i um my my goal after my masters in education is to apply to clinical psychology because my major kind of career goal is to support uh trans queer gender non binary gender fluid and two spirit peoples within right. clinical psychology so so i definitely would love to continue working on this improve you know we hear about medical education all the time but we don't necessarily yes. hear about the other allied health professions so so that's kind of where i want to take uh, a role
0: you've got a huge future there i i can see <laughs> so what is the impact of this research that you're doing because you're doing a masters which is only 2 years Mm-hmm. So you know, you know it's a big project to take on for two years
1: yes that's what my committee keeps telling me <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah
1: mm-hmm. i i i think uh you know over time i kind of keep i scale it down a little bit and i kind of think okay long-term picture you know i can do this over a long period of time but The impact of this, I'm hoping that we can design this measure so that it can be used not only as a research tool, but also an educational tool and a self-assessment tool for mental health professionals. So so I mentioned kind of three areas there. I'll I'll go through them quickly. So as a research tool, I'm hoping that having this instrument can promote other researchers to, to investigate mental health professionals and trans health in general. And so that we can better understand the gaps of like the understanding, you know, the KSA of mental health professionals related to to trans health, especially in Canada. So when I look into the literature, I don't see any studies that are that are based in Canada. And I think that's really important if we're trying to you know, because education is contextual. It's very Mm -hmm. and and Clinical uh, practices are also contextual. So it's important that we do it at home as well. And if we know the gaps in education or in knowledge, sorry, then we can better target education. So that's kind of the research tool side of things. And then the educational tool or the self-assessment tool side of things, it'll be the same measure, but I'm hoping that people can use it within their clinical psychology courses, um, you know, maybe they'll get their students to fill out a couple of the situations within the the instrument that I'm creating. And then they can do some, you know, reflective practice based on those situations, because the instrument is basically made up of a bunch of different clinical scenarios or situations. Okay, I was going to ask you that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So for example, um, I have one up here. So uh, for example, during an internship, you notice various policies and practices that do not proactively integrate gender inclusivity. For example, the re- requisition forms only include male and female checkboxes for sex and do not mention gender identity. Um, and so then it'll kind of go through and ask uh, the the clinical trainee or the clinical professional uh, about um how they would go about that that situation. So within an educ within a course, you know, you could take uh this instrument and then kind of talk about it in groups or as a class or do a reflective practice on it. Um, or is, if you're a professional, you know, you could take it as a self-assessment tool to figure out where, where you are in your, in your understanding of, of this area and then see, okay, these are kind of my gaps. Cause it'll give you a little bit of a report afterwards. You know, you didn't, right. know these areas are maybe where these other choices might've been better. So, so I think that it can be one piece of promoting social accountability within the field of of mental health professions. And if, if we improve the social accountability, I think that these professionals may be in a better position to better support trans communities um, and help alleviate some of the major barriers that the trans community faces to accessing and receiving adequate health care. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope that it can serve as an initial step in improving the health and well-being of trans communities.
0: So do you... I mean, I, I can totally get where you're coming from, but this is, you know, um, part of an educational thing. But does does this awareness need to be an educational thing or does it need to go further than that and start to become, I hate using the word policy all the time, but yeah. at a higher level saying we need to make changes? Because if, if a health profession sees that their questionnaires that they're using only has two checkboxes, and mm-hmm. not a third or a fourth. Yeah, is it for them to go around and change all those, or, or should be they really be going up to the next level and saying, "Hey, what, what's going on? We need to change these."
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: So is. Is, is it, at the moment you're looking at the people at the the base level mm-hmm. or the front level, as opposed to the people who are making those decisions of what should be on those forms mm-hmm. at times.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're so you're so right about that, and and you bring up a really good point about making sure that this type of work is is being targeted at multiple locations so so my contribution is through the education because i'm passionate about education but i do know lots of other folks who are going at this type of work through a policy framework or through um a grassroots kind of approach so you know you could Mm -hmm. do a top-down approach like you were mentioning and make sure you go to the highest high but I think if you if you approach this type of work from multiple levels I think that's when it's going to be most effective and that's why it's, it's so important within research that we're collaborating with other researchers with practitioners um, mm-hmm. yeah with at multiple levels with multiple stakeholders um, and especially with with trans stakeholders because you know they're experts in their own uh in their own fields you know and about their life so
0: well, exactly. I mm. mean, we've been doing that, too, with, you know, doing research with Indigenous communities. Mm, let's, exactly. You know, let's not assume we know what they want so, or, or what they need. <laughs> we should be asking yes. um, and working together mm-hmm. if they want us to work together. So, mm-hmm. so that's great. Yeah. So, so I guess what, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned from your work so far?
1: Mm-hmm. I think, It's so beautiful to see like the different strengths of psychology and education and kind of mixing those uh, within the work that I do, because I I find like, for example, in psychology, it tends to be more post-positive, but I did learn a lot about uh, research methods and quantitative methods. And I feel like in education, I have really learned to reflect on my own positionality, my own power and my biases as a researcher. You know, as as much as we try to be unbiased researchers and you know make make conclusions that about the truth or getting closer to mm-hmm. the truth, I feel like um, I don't know. In education, they take a different kind of approach to it. So, so it, it's really got got me reflecting a lot on who I am and recognizing that I need to have trans people leading this work. That I don't want right. to take, take up space here, but I hope that. By collaborating with people who are trans or gender diverse, Um, I can support the push towards welcoming gender diversity in healthcare and education and in our institutions. And like I mentioned that I want to go into clinical psychology and being part of this field has really pushed me more towards that passion. And I actually began doing work in more sexual health based things, but I saw how much of a gap there was uh, in the education of other health professions. So So I wanted to see how I could take a role in in this work. So that's kind of the first one, kind of like reflecting on where I am in my life and my positionality and my biases and all that stuff. And and the second one, the importance of intersectional and strengths-based research, like I was mentioning a little bit earlier. So, yeah, like earlier I mentioned how we often fall into this deficit space narrative where we, we paint like this tragic picture of a population that we're studying like uh, I, I know one of my committee members, Lee, Dr. Lee Ayrton, has a, a really great paper on like the suffering queers or whatever and right. how you can take this kind of role. So, so I really learned that it's super, super important. It's essential to highlight the strengths and the resilience of the trans community in the face of dis- the discrimination that they face. And like, I've learned tangible ways of how we can do this by really listening, by really reflecting and amplifying their voices uh, of the community that you're doing research with. So you you mentioned Indigenous research, um, and they have such a great schema of collaboratively designing studies. So right. I, I recently learned about the principles of utility, of self-voicing, of access and inter- uh relationality as well as like them having ownership over their own data you know control and access over their data and possession of their data so God. so I'm doing a lot of I'm learning a lot from indigenous scholars and trying to apply it um, to this field so that's within the the strength space thing and then the intersectional side of, um, I think it's also really important to see how within systems of oppression, people's social positions, like being a woman or being indigenous or being queer, um, they compound or add up to impact right. the opportunities and well-being, um, their well-being. So it's really focused, so my measure is really focused on this when, I, when I'm when i developing it. I'm, I'm making sure that you know, these situations are involving people who are trans and black or, you know, like they're compounding their social positions. And then the last little thing that I wanted to mention, I know this is going super long. Um, That's right. <laughs> it, it, it's as researchers in social sciences, I think it's super important that we are drawing from different ways of knowing. So epistemology, different ways of doing so methodology, and different ways of valuing research like axiology. And that's, right. that's what I've really learned in education, and I hope to to like bring that forward um, in the work in my future
0: research and uh, work. You've you've done a lot. Can I can I ask you because you're you're putting this assessment tool together? Have you um, given it to anyone yet, or are you still drawing it together? Drawing yeah,
1: it it's in the development phase. So I've given it to. Or not given it, but I've shared it with my committee, um, who's right. giving me feedback on it. So, so the next stage is to get. Uh, I'm planning to do what's called a Delphi. So, it's basically you're giving out the this this instrument to uh, a lot of different people, and then they anonymous anonymously give you feedback. And these people are all experts uh, within right. either transgender health or clinical education or building like psychometrics which is like psychological measurement and so they're all going to give me feedback and then after that then I'll send it to mental health trainees and professionals who will take
0: the instrument well that's pretty neat will you get it all done within your two years
1: yeah well I mean I might (laughs) on the development piece uh for for like the actual write up of my master's but i'll definitely continue on doing the validation pieces afterwards is is my plan so far especially with the pandemic and the context of all these things you know we've had to to change some deadlines and i think that you know my committee's happy with it i'm happy with it i think it's it's more doable and um, my, my committee and my supervisor really tell me that you know garbage in garbage out if you develop something super well you know, that's when you see a really good instrument come out. And I want to make sure that I'm being careful in the development phase, because it's, it's working with the trans community. So I I want to make sure that it, it does have, you know, it does give back.
0: That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got your work cut out there for you. But I think you've got a lot that you can be doing to help all health professionals. And as you said, the trans community. So well done on that. So before we finish, let's let us just, I'd like to ask you a little bit about some of the other things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, because you're on this, was it Social Healing Reconciliation Education Research Group, and then mm-hmm. you're doing work with the Centre for Teaching and Learning, and you're volunteering in all sorts of different places. I mean, are you still doing all those things, or are you just picking bits and pieces from now.
1: I'm actively involved in those. So I'm really I'm really lucky to be working with the Center for Teaching and Learning and the Faculty of Arts and Science. Um and so we're we're creating a module and a resource guide for instructors on how to integrate gender inclusivity in higher education. So I've been super lucky that my supervisor there, Dr. Jill Atkinson, has has let me kind of follow my passion within right. diversity and inclusivity within the teaching realm and higher education there. So yeah, that that uh, resource guide will be available super soon if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, That's brilliant. Yeah, and then you mentioned the Social Healing and Reconciliation Education Group. So uh, short form is SHARE. Clarice is also part of that. Um uh, uh-huh. And so basically, it's it's an interdisciplinary group where we critically examine historical practices and education. And I have just learned so much from that group. It's been like really, I don't know, wonderful the way that they set up the meetings even. it's It, it just kind of, I don't know, deconstructs a lot of the, the notions that we have of how to do... I don't know how to do research, how to approach meetings. Even like we have really long check-ins right. where we really get to know each other, and the relationality piece is like super huge there. So I've I've done so much learning um,
0: from 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 that group, and I guess that kind of helps your your own work right now too, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: with the intersectional piece that I was talking about, like it's it's important for me to 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 understand. Um, different issues from different lenses or try to best understand or listen as much as I can I guess so so it has really really been helpful for me
0: and I love this bit you're volunteering with a group called Roots and Wings which I have heard of where you know Mm -hmm. you um, you're helping develop educational workshops for racialized girls Mm -hmm. can you tell me a bit about that
1: yeah, so actually, Clarissa's on that on that group as well. I'm just following her around, I guess. Now, <laughs> that, that, that's been also super lovely group because they also kind of deconstruct the norms that are usually associated with I don't know institutions or groups. So it's a really lovely group. So I'm helping develop these workshops for for these racialized girls between eight to fourteen, and uh, we focus on like identity exploration. exploration and learning about social justice in a really kind of fun and age-appropriate way. Um, so so that's been really nice because I've gotten to know a lot of like-minded people and also like right. different
0: approaches to things. Um, so, Gosh, so- I wish we had some of these workshops when I was going through school. I, yeah, I, too. I think, too. Um, I mean, you said it's ages 8 to 14. Well, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some of these should be put into the, the – um, Elementary school and high school curriculums.
1: Honestly, I know it's it's a bit, it's a bit tough depending on who's in charge, <laughs> but but yeah, that would be that would be super helpful for people to kind of explore and like appreciate and d- dive into their own identities and cultures. That would have been helpful for me, especially coming from Mexico and I, I grew up oh. in a really small town, so so it would have been nice to kind of get that opportunity. And then you're also an
0: edit is it an editor is that Associate Editor for for, re, for Research in a Nutshell. I love it. Great yeah. title. Um, you. As you said, it's Knowledge Mobilization Newsletter to Promote con- the Connections Between t- Teaching and Research. And I think that's very, very important, having that connection between teaching and research because yeah. we can have some great research, but we've got to get it out there as well.
1: Exactly. It's like the knowledge mobilization or knowledge translation piece. It's something I've mm-hmm. really gotten into Um Especially from, in our faculty, there's a professor called uh, Dr. Amanda Cooper, and she focuses on that. And she's been super inspirational in my career for making sure that we're moving forward the research that we're doing within practice or within policy and, you know, informing back
0: and forth between all of those, all of those pieces. All very, very important. Well, like I said, I you know, Sophia, you've got your work cut out for you, but it sounds like you you take it on without any hesitation at all because you're so passionate about it all.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I'm so. It's what gives me energy
0: when you when you can see you can make a difference. It makes things so much easier for you, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy, but I'm sure you're going to make a difference. <laughs> Thank you. And just listening to some of the things that you're doing, I'm going to have to come and chat to you after too and, and see how you and Clarissa and a few of your colleagues can come and help us at the School of Graduate Studies.
1: Oh, I would I would love that so much. I always love talking with folks and uh, learning from other people and sharing what I can, so that would be wonderful.
0: Fantastic. So, Sophia, we're going to have to call it quits there. Yeah. Um, I, I do appreciate you coming on the show, even though you kind of got thrown in by Clarissa. But um, I'm glad you I'm glad you put your hand up to say yes, I'd love to come on because we've learned a lot today. I know with the results from your work, hopefully um, things will make some changes in our health system.
1: I hope so. I hope so. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, yeah, this has been lovely. I really enjoyed it.
0: That's excellent. Well, thank you again and best of luck with it all. Thanks. You too. Well, that's it, everyone. A another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.